I want to really thank all of you for carving out some time to join us this evening to listen to our four incredible uh, speakers uh, talk about the very timely topic of drug use and addiction in the 21st century. Tonight's program is brought to you in partnership between the faculties of medicine, dentistry, arts, and pharmaceutical sciences, as well as alumni UBC. And I'd like to extend a very special welcome to Dr. Dermot Kelleher, the Dean of UBC's Faculty of Medicine. Dermot, welcome. Delighted that you are here. Thank you. And uh, also, I'm not sure I've seen her yet this evening, but Dr. Mary McDougall, UBC's Dean of Dentistry as well, and I'm sure she'll join us a little later if she's not already here. Uh, we'd like to take this opportunity also to thank our sponsor, MD Management, for their support of tonight's UBC event. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll join me in thanking our sponsors for their tremendous support. So and now I'd like to introduce our moderator for this evening, Dr. Gurdeep Parhar, the Executive Associate Dean of Clinical Partnerships and Professionalism for UBC's Faculty of Medicine. Previously, Dr. Parhar served as UBC's Acting Associate Vice President, Equity Inclusion, as well as Co-Acting Head and Associate Head of the U.S. Department, UBC Department of Family Practice. Gurdeep's clinical practice focuses on immigrants, refugees, workers, health and patients with severe disabilities, and at UBC, he teaches professionalism, equity, cultural safety, psychosocial aspects of healthcare, and medical disability. In May of 2016, Dr. Parhar delivered a very successful TEDx talk entitled Fixing Racism that was watched by over one million viewers within four weeks of being posted online. So I hope you'll join me in giving a very warm welcome to our wonderful moderator, Gurdeep Parhar. Gurdeep. Thank you. Um, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to be the moderator for Med Talks this year. But I think I'm even more thankful for the opportunity to engage in this important conversation. So in April 2016, so not April last year, but the year before that, our provincial health officer um, said that in BC we were having a public um, emergency crisis, health, a public health crisis. And that was in recognition of the fact that there were a lot of people overdosing, both fatally and non-fatally. Now sadly, since April of 2016, the deaths didn't go down. In fact, in 2017, there were a lot more deaths than there were in 2016. UBC, being an engaged university, trying to connect with the community, started looking at our training programs, our educational programs. We looked at our service delivery. We looked at our research initiatives and said, what can we do better to help with this crisis? Just a couple of weeks ago, President Santa Ono had a president's table. It was in conjunction with BC Center for Substance Use. And it took all these stakeholders and brought them into a room and said, what more can UBC be doing? Dean Kelleher, who's in the front row, often reminds all of us um, pretty frequently about our social contract. You might be thinking, a social contract, what does that mean? A social contract for us means that it is something between UBC and society. It's between UBC and the population of BC. And basically what that contract says is that UBC has a responsibility to do the best that we can to meet the health care needs of all British Columbians. So the people that are overdosing and the people that are dying, yes, there are patients. Yes, there are, but we have to remember they're also our friends. They're also our family members. They're also our community members. Some of them are dying just a couple blocks from here, but others are dying in their private homes, in social settings. 
They're dying in suburbs, in towns and cities all around this province. So this evening, we're very fortunate. We've got four people, four thought leaders, who've been thinking about this a lot. And what we've tasked them with is share your insights into what, what, what you've been thinking about and how we can move forward. And we've asked them to think about what brought us to the crisis? Why are we even here? What's going to happen? What are the consequences if we don't address this crisis satisfactorily? What's going to be the bad, even worse outcome? And finally, what is our common responsibility to support the people that are living with these challenges on a daily basis? So what we're going to do is we're going to hear the four presentations. And after the four presentations are complete, we're going to invite the four speakers to sit up here. We're going to have a bit of a chat and a discussion. And as Jeff said, as each speaker is speaking, if you could start putting in your questions. But do start it off with the name of the speaker to whom you want the question addressed so we kind of know who, who the question is going to. Before I introduce the first speaker, I have a bit of an apology, and that's that our introductions of each speaker are going to be kind of really short and abbreviated. If you knew how lengthy these successful people's CVs are, they're about this long. And then if I introduce them looking at every accomplishment on their CV, you'd listen to me all night and not them. So we've abbreviated them. And our first speaker, our first speaker is Lindsay Richardson. So Lindsay is an assistant professor of sociology in the Faculty of Arts at UBC. And Lindsay is what they call a medical sociologist. So what she's most fascinated with and what she's a specialist at is she looks at the socioeconomic determinants of healthcare for vulnerable populations. So using mixed, mixed methods research techniques, she looks at socioeconomic factors and how that affects health outcomes for various populations in, in, in BC and around the world. Before, uh, before Lindsay joined the world of academia, she also worked in social development and she worked in health policy, both with the city of Vancouver and the federal government of Canada. So join me in welcoming Lindsay so she can tell us about the socioeconomic drivers of substance use and overdose. Hi, everyone. So the date is April 26, 2017. And on this day, BC Emergency Health Services marks a really unfortunate record. They have 130 overdose calls in a single day. It's the largest single day tally that the province has ever seen. April 26, 2017 is also what's commonly referred to as Welfare Wednesday or Check Day. And this is the day each month that uh, people who receive income assistance get their payments from the provincial government. So April 26, 2017 reinforced what we all already know and what's already been mentioned, and that's that BC and Canada and North America are in the middle of twin opioid and overdose crises. Like the increasing calls to emergency responders, key stats associated with the crisis are dramatically outpacing anything that we've ever seen before. The most alarming of these is fatal overdose. So in 2017, we lost 1,446 people, which was 43% more than the 992 that we lost in 2016 and 178% more than the 520 that we lost in 2015. Four of five are men, 70% are between the ages of 19 and 49. Half occur in the Lower Mainland. And this astonishing rise is attributed to increases in opioid use, but is also attributed to a poisonous and toxic drug supply. So we talk about overdose, but it's often poisoning that's really happening. And 
the drug supply is contaminated with fentanyl and carfentanil, which are highly powerful synthetic opioids um, that dramatically increase the likelihood of overdose or poisoning. And much is being done to try and respond to this unprecedented public health crisis. We've got supervised consumption and overdose prevention sites, drug testing facilities, distribution of overdose reversing naloxone, uh, innovative treatment. They're all expanding, and all are critical in reducing death from overdose. And it's really difficult to fathom what this death toll would be if those life-saving measures weren't in place. However, access to these services is often restricted geographically, and it's mostly available for most of them in urban centers. And most of our current initiatives don't prevent overdose, they only prevent it from becoming fatal. And so what I'm going to talk about is preventing overdose in the first place. So what does income assistance have to do with any of this? You're looking at the 2018 income assistance payment calendar. You'll notice that people are paid once a month, all on the same day, usually the last Wednesday of the month. And when you look at when overdoses happened in BC, between March of last year and February of this year, we saw an average of 5.7 overdoses per day on check day and the days following, compared to an average of 3.5 per day at all other times of the month. So that's a 40% increase in fatal overdoses around payment days. I hope it goes without saying that income assistance is a really critical component of our social safety net. Payment days see a lot of increased activity. So um, this is a picture of people in line at, at the bank in the downtown east side. Bars and cannabis dispensaries extend their opening hours, and drug dealers collect outstanding debts. There's a lot of activity. As with most people, when income assistance recipients have more money, their consumption increases. Who among us hasn't, hasn't waited until payday to take care of a large expense? Or gone out for drinks after, on payday to celebrate with a coworker? But when you pay everyone at the same time, and when you have consumption that's associated with social signals, consumption's gonna increase even more. And so for people who drink alcohol, who hasn't gone out for a single drink and had three unintentionally? And when you add a toxic drug supply to the mix, that's what gets us to April 26, 2017. Right? What we saw that day was consistent with decades of research by my team and others that really associates that synchronized payment schedule with spikes in drug-related harm. And so we can and should understand things like this as signals where change might actually have an impact. So my team is currently running an experiment that looks at what happens with when instead of paying everyone at the same time on the same day once a month, what would happen if you paid them not at the same time or twice a month instead of once? We've been running the study for a couple of years and we're optimistic uh, as we wind down data collection that what we're finding is really going to offer insight into ways in which the public income assistance system can better promote health, particularly for people who use drugs. And looking at social and socioeconomic conditions and how they increase overdose risk is a potentially critical component of our response efforts that adopt a preventive as well as a responsive approach. But this approach cannot be restricted to income assistance alone. 
So socioeconomic marginalization, which includes inadequate income, access to the labor market, participation in prohib prohibited or illegal income generation, like drug dealing, um, material security, like housing and food security, are all drivers of drug-related harm. This kind of marginalization, it affects whether and how people use drugs, it affects how they experience the impacts of their use, and their access to a broad range of health and social services. So in the context of the overdose crisis, socioeconomic marginalization could look a bunch of different ways. It might be someone who loses their housing, and along with it, the space and routines and social interactions that allow them to use opioids more safely. It could look like someone who experiences chronic pain but doesn't have the resources to access care, so they self-medicate with, uh, self with street drugs. Or it could be someone who is released from prison who doesn't have the resources to land gently and ends up uh, not accessing treatment and overdosing or relapsing dangerously. And so, as this public health emergency deepens, we need to integrate a broader understanding of overdose risk into our response. This includes the initiatives that are currently underway. But it also includes, very critically, and must include, measures that address socioeconomic factors with documented linkages to both immediate and long-term overdose risk. So that includes the income assistance system, but it also includes housing and housing security, insufficient su support following catastrophic events or release from prison, severe poverty, lower educational attainment. And so if we want to put an end to this unprecedented health emergency, we must evaluate and implement social, economic, and criminal justice program and policy changes that will prevent overdose from happening to begin with. Thank you. Wow, that was fantastic and a great way to get us started. Thanks again, Lindsay. So I'd next like to introduce um, Leanne Donnelly. Leanne is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Dentistry. And so she teaches extensively the, in the dentistry program, the dental hygiene program, and the graduate students in the Faculty of Dentistry. She's also, um, in terms of a community and special care, she's a community and special care coordinator for the dental hygiene degree program. And Leanne's own work and her research focuses on very, very, very interesting area of, of healthcare, and that is looking at the needs of oral health care for people that are vulnerable in vulnerable populations. So more specifically, what she does is she looks at the inequities that exist for oral health care in people who are incarcerated, people who are homeless, people who have HIV, people with mental illness, and people who use substances. So Leanne's going to speak to us today about mental health, addiction, and oral health. Thanks very much, Gurdeep. Welcome, everyone. It's uh, my pleasure to be here talking with you. Um, so as Gurdeep said, I work with a number of marginalized populations. So five years ago, in um, starting to develop a, a community outreach preventive program, I conducted a study um, looking at the oral health needs of women with a history of incarceration. And what I started to learn from that study, as well as the subsequent work that we've done and the actual programs that we've put in place in the community, has really started me to look at mental health and addiction or substance use um, in relation to oral health in a very different way. 
And I'm hoping that with what I share with you tonight, you will actually start to look at it in a different way. And as Lindsay said um, very eloquently, start looking at things where we can actually make a difference in this overdose crisis that is happening. So most people, um, when I talk to them about doing this med talk, because we've got publicized um, on our website, most actually thought I was going to come and talk about maybe prescription practices of dentists and how that contributes, or some of the oral health um, problems that come up with people who use substances and also those people who might have a mental illness. But what I really want to talk about tonight is the flip of that and how oral health actually contributes to mental health problems as well as substance use issues. So what I want to start by talking about is oral health problems don't happen overnight. Um, We all start off with relatively healthy teeth, start to get a little bit of decalcification. It gets a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, and now we start to feel things even deeper. And at this point... We're looking at things that are actually getting into the nerve of the tooth. It's very painful, and we're looking at possibly extraction um, or root canal if you can afford it. So my question to you is, what would you do about this pain in your mouth? Anybody? You'd go to the dentist. Yeah, and we know from the Canadian Health Measures Survey that actually most people do do that. Um, they'll either start off with taking a bit of pain reliever for those early types of lesions. Then they'll pop into the dentist if that's not working very well. And some people who are, have an aversion to the dentist, which is not totally uncommon, um, may actually turn towards um, home remedies. So what do you think happens when somebody, for one reason or another, whether it be fear of the dentist, um, whether it be lack of access through lack of funds or not having medical insurance, what do you think they do? Anybody? They're flyers. They're flyers. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's a number of things that actually people do. Typically, what we're finding is if they don't have a dentist, um, they're tending to land in emergency. Um, And they go to emergency because they potentially have a swelling um, from an infection that's going on, or they have a lot of pain and they're looking for a pain reliever. So it's not just the emergency rooms that they go to, but they also tend to go to walk-in clinics. Um, The walk-in clinics, though, especially with the change in prescription practices, are, are not meeting their needs. <clears throat> so I had a colleague who actually tried to see how big of, this, how big of a problem this was in British Columbia. And <clears throat> we know now that about 1% of emergency room visits are actually for non-traumatic dental issues. So cavities, gum disease, um, infections. And this number may not seem large, but that's about 12,000 people in a year. It came to about $1.5 million. Um, And what do you think happened in the emergency room? What was that? They gave them something for pain. They gave them antibiotics. 
What do you think that did for the tooth problem? Not much. We call it a real band-aid situation. And then the worst thing that we actually tell them is go to the dentist. So we get pain medication, we get antibiotics, and we get told to go to the dentist. And if people actually could access the dentist comfortably, um, whether that be from a, an emotional standpoint or from a financial standpoint, they would be at the dentist. So unfortunately what happens is we have an individual who can't access care. Over time of multiple appointments or multiple visits to the ER with a Band-Aid approach, things get worse. And what we're finding now is people are starting to turn to substances. Because there's um, great knowledge about how opioid prescriptions have contributed somewhat to the crisis that we're in, people are really looking at their prescription practices, and people need somewhere to go. And not to mention this, in some instances, can be a little bit less expensive. And it shouldn't really come as much of a surprise, because since the 19 or 1800s, People have been using substances to deal with tooth pain. So one of the studies that we also did, we wanted to look at stigma and how was stigma and how people were being treated within the healthcare system contributing to what we were seeing with emergency room visits um, and what we were seeing in our practices. So myself and a colleague and our grad student um, looked at what types of things were actually going on, and what we heard in general from the individuals with um, a dual diagnosis of mental illness as well as a substance use disorder was that they felt that they were stereotyped unworthy. They were labeled different. They weren't included at that point then in the decision-making process of what was going on. And they felt that they were treated unfairly. So instead of having a restoration or a filling placed, they were having a tooth removed, which unfortunately puts somebody, especially if that tooth is in a visible place, um, at a disadvantage. And they really did feel powerless in this. And it wasn't just in the dental setting. A lot of this came up in healthcare, which actually um, had them relate that into the dental setting as well. But it was definitely also being heard in the dental setting. There was also really positive things, which I think are important to point out, was that when practitioners showed empathy, they offered reassurance, and they had good communication and didn't treat them differently, patients really felt empowered and they were willing to go back. Um, and that's something that we're really trying to look at now as far as trying to curb the amount of substance use that's actually going on. So we're also trying to explore, based on this last study, we have a new study that's going on, and we're looking at how people access care and how they actually manage their oral problems when they don't have care. And this gentleman, where I've put his, his quote up, was um, <clears throat> quite distraught. I've only put the first part up, and it, it's quite obvious that he was actually self-medicating for the pain that he was feeling with his tooth. And there is a point that people get to 
or they will, and they've told us that they will actually take that step and go out and um, try and access dental care. But unfortunately, depending on where they go, they might not get the outcome that they like. Um, this gentleman, by the time that we were interviewing him and further on in the interview, he talked a lot about how this actually made him feel now with everything breaking down and how that was actually contributing to his self-esteem, his overall self-worth, his ability to find gainful employment, even though he actually really liked working with people and liked talking with people because of the way his teeth looked and the amount of pain that he was still having with them. He chose to actually work um, as a computer technician in the back of an office um, where he didn't have to deal with people. And this isn't actually an uncommon thing, even though this was one of our research participants. In our community um, programs that we run, we also run, come across a number of individuals who, once we actually get things um, stabilized, we get them out to um, have some dental care done. So this lady came to us, and we got things stabilized. She did have a dual diagnosis of um, a mental illness as well as a substance use disorder. And we were able to get her out to a dentist, which took about two years to do. Part of that was because of when her disability insurance came into play. But it goes to show that sometimes going to the dentist isn't always the best thing when the treatment that is provided doesn't actually fix the problem. Um, it's unfortunate she still, to this day, doesn't have those, those front eight teeth because the disability insurance is not actually going to be um, coming into play for another couple of months. Um, she does actually self-medicate. She does use um, three different types of substances. Um, we have confirmed that she has a safe source. Um, and unfortunately, this is the, the situation that some people are in. So when we talk about the overdose crisis, it is a very complex crisis. And I by no means am going to stand here today and tell you that oral health problems are actually driving it. But I would like you to consider that it does actually impact some people. Um, and it could be contributing to the use of drugs as well as the overdose crisis that's going on. Um, because some people just have nowhere else to go and are using self-medication um, to get through their pain, whether it be emotional pain um, or actual physical pain. So I just want to make sure that what you leave here with today is that even though substance use and mental health can certainly impact oral health, um, Oral health problems can also contribute to substance use and mental health issues. Thank you very much. Thank you, Leanne. And I have to admit, I was one of those who wouldn't have thought of the link that way between oral health, and mental illness, and substance use. So it definitely changes my paradigm of thinking. And thank you for that brilliant talk. The next presenter is Tamara Mihic, and um, Tamara is 
a clinical instructor and lecturer in the, in the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at UBC. But her other job, her day job, I guess, is that she's a clinical, um, clinical uh, pharmacy specialist in mental health at St. Paul's Hospital. So what that means is that she's responsible for two units inside St. Paul's where patients are admitted who have mental illness and substance use problems. And so her role is to educate. Her role is to make sure that the drug and medical therapy is optimized. But perhaps the most important thing is she has to make sure that there's a seamless sort of healthcare delivery and connection between being out in the community and, and, and being in the hospital setting. So Tamara's going to speak to us now about the pharmacist's response to the opiate crisis. All right, hello everyone. Um, so the overwhelming number of opioid-related deaths in BC has led to a number of changes in availability of various treatments for opioid use disorder within British Columbia. However, I think this is also an important time to look at what are the, some of the factors that have led to patients having opioid use disorder and how can we help mitigate these to help prevent future dependence and potentially opioid-related mortality. Now, I'm going to take you on a little walk through history and then get you to what we're currently doing at St. Paul's Hospital. So ever since morphine was first isolated from opium in 1804, we've had a contentious relationship with prescription opioids. Its widespread use during the American Civil War was a very effective analgesic strategy, but led to widespread dependence and addiction following the war. Now, in 1898, when Bayer first came out with heroin as an over-the-counter cough medication, they marketed it as a non-addictive alternative to the very addictive morphine. Unfortunately, that did not prove to be so accurate, and it eventually led to the removal of heroin from the market and the criminalization of it within North America. Now, a century later, history seemed to repeat itself with the widespread use of oxycodone. Now, prior to 1996, opioids um, as prescriptions were used primarily as short-term treatments for acute pain. Now, in 1996, Purdue Pharmaceuticals released OxyContin on the market and heavily promoted it as an effective and safe treatment for chronic pain. This was largely based on the idea that if you're treating chronic pain, you cannot develop an addiction. And all of this came from essentially one uh, letter to the editor published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980. Now, after oxycodone's release on the market, we started to notice large increases in the number of individuals presenting to treatment centers with oxycodone dependence and addiction, a large increase in the number of opioid-related deaths, and even illicit use of oxycodone. And in some cases, I read that tablets were going for $60 on the street per tablet. So after this, both Canada and the United States initiated large reviews of opioid prescribing practices and noticed that all of these increases could potentially have been linked to this promotion of prescription opioids for chronic pain. Now, by 2012, Purdue Pharmaceuticals changed their OxyContin formulation to a tamper-proof um, form called OxyNeo. But by that point, the damage had already been done. And the, there was large class action lawsuits, and the majority of provinces decided that they were not going to fund any long-acting oxycodone formulation. Now, you would think all of that would lead to a decrease in prescription opioid use within Canada. However, what we saw was that there was a reduction in oxycodone prescriptions, but not a very large reduction in overall prescription opioid use. And essentially, the majority of these patients were simply switched from oxycodone to other opioid formulations, mainly being hydromorphone. 
Uh, one study looking at BC Pharmacare data found that 12% of individuals within BC every year are given at least one prescription for an opioid. Now, why is this concerning? Um, the use of a prescription opioid increases someone's risk of developing opioid use disorder by, by about 5.5%. Now, another study by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto found that of 500 patients that were admitted to their detox program over a five-year period, 37% of them used only prescription opioids prescribed by their doctor. Another 27% used both prescription and illicit opioids, and only 21% were just using street opioids. So prescription opioids were a very large issue. With that being said, however, in that same study, a majority of the patients had chronic pain issues that were still needing to be addressed. 31% of them had chronic back pain. Another 18% suffered from chronic headaches. Now, it's estimated that it takes about 18 to 24 months within British Columbia for a patient to receive specialty tertiary pain services. So while individuals are waiting for help with their complex pain issues, it's largely left to their primary prescribers and emergency departments to help manage this pain. Furthermore, with more stringent standards set out by the BC College of Physicians and Surgeons on opioid prescribing, a lot of physicians were left wondering, how do we deal with pain management for patients that are already on really high doses of opioids? Now... Sorry, and so a lot of them, a lot of those patients ended up having their prescriptions either rapidly tapered or discontinued, which is something that we had noticed in the hospital. If this happens, sometimes patients are then forced to be using street opioids to manage their withdrawal symptoms and cravings. And as our first two presenters had mentioned, with a contaminated and toxic drug supply, this can pr prove potentially fatal. So what do we want to do about this? Um, at St. Paul's Hospital, our pharmacists were really keen and wanting to help do something to improve opioid prescribing practices. We have pharmacists on all the inpatient units at St. Paul's Hospital providing care to all of our patients as part of interdisciplinary teams. They're there as medication experts to help provide safe and effective therapy. And we thought that, it, that we were in a great position to help initiate a program to help improve opioid prescribing. We did a review of the literature and found that there's no such opioid stewardship uh, program that really looked at acute prescribing within hospital. Um, the only two programs we found looked at more community-focused approaches. Also, we did a review of the literature and found certain risk factors uh, that made patients more um, likely to experience adverse effects from opioids, like being opioid-naive or of older age. And we found certain prescription-related risk factors that also made them um, more risky, like using long-acting opioids for acute pain. We used all of that information in addition to conducting focus groups with our pharmacists to think of what are practical facilitators and barriers to initiating a hospital-wide opioid stewardship program. Eventually, we came to the decision to create our MORE tool. Now, this, is, this can be used by all pharmacists within the hospital to walk through the different steps of opioid prescribing and assessment and help provide the best care for our patients. Using this, we have M with medication and safety review, where they look at those risk factors and identify high-risk patients to focus their time on. Uh, the optimize, which provides them with strategies of adding adjunctive non-opioid uh, non analgesics or removing potentially harmful concomitant medications like benzodiazepines. 
are for reassessment and referral, so continuing to monitor their pain and adverse effects, and potentially referring to specialty services like addictions medicine service or chronic or acute pain services. And finally, to educate and plan and communicate. So educating the patient on what to expect with their opioid prescription and communicating that plan to their community prescriber and community pharmacy. So in the end, treating pain is hard, it's complicated. There's a number of factors to consider, both from the addiction potential, but also from the necessary treatment for chronic pain. And we are hoping that a interdisciplinary, comprehensive approach to this would be the step to, for us to move forward and take the best care of our patients. That's great, uh, Tamara. Just get, <clears throat> in case you're wondering, I was confirming that she was a pharmacist, so I scribbled some, as a doctor, I just scribbled some stuff on a piece of paper, and she actually could tell what I wrote, so I'm pretty sure she's a pharmacist. <clears throat> Bad handwriting joke. When my grade one teacher said I had the worst penmanship she'd ever seen, I was sort of had to become a doctor. There's nothing else I could do. Um, so thank you very much for that. Our, to introduce our fourth speaker, Mark Tendall is a professor in the Faculty of Medicine School of Population and Public Health. Mark's other responsibilities are that he's the executive director for the BC Center for Disease Control, and he's actually the deputy provincial health officer as well. Mark is a specialist in infectious diseases, um, in epidemiology, and in public health. And he spent, I guess his work's, life's work has been spent looking at poverty, looking at HIV and substance use, first in Kenya and then now in Vancouver. Mark's uh, got a lot of claims to fame, but one of them is that he was one of the loudest voices that helped set up the safe, supervised injection site program. In, in BC and in Vancouver. And for those that know this well, is that not only did it lead to reduced deaths, but it led to less infectious diseases being transferred or passed from one person to another. But thirdly is that it improved the amount of medical and healthcare services as well as social services that people were able to access. Um, Mark isn't a stranger to the TED, uh, TED sort of format. His uh, TED talk just went up live on YouTube, so do look him up at TED.com. Um, and you can see the other portion of this talk that he's, uh, that he's delivered there. So welcome, um, Mark, to the stage. And Mark's going to speak about the overdose crisis in Canada, preventable or predictable? Uh, thank you very much. So as you've heard, uh, last year in the province of British Columbia, there was 1,446 unintentional overdose deaths. If you think about that, that's about 120 a month or four per day. And as a public health um, expert and politicians and concerned citizens, we always say that these deaths are preventable. But the more I've thought about this and the more I've worked through this, um, I think most of these deaths are predictable within the current environment. It's really important to know why people are using drugs in the first place, and we've already had uh, some talks around that, but um, at the core, people are self-medicating, whether it's trauma or physical pain or mental illness or sexual abuse. Um, the thousands of people that I've seen over my 25 years of doing this all have a story, and they're using pills to numb their pain. And all the terrible things we see happen to people, the abuse and sickness and homelessness and isolation and stigmatization are our drug policies and have very little to do with the drugs themselves. I think it's 
so important to uh, make sure that we give credit to uh, where credit's due. I was glad to see Ann Livingston come in today, um, who has a lot to do with the organization of Van Du, uh, Vancouver, area Net Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. And uh, pretty much everything that we've learned about harm reduction and all the progress we've made in, uh, in um, BC around this area is uh, really uh, grassroots people who are organized and, uh, and are uh, come up with the ideas and uh, we really need to listen to this group and uh, allow them to uh, move things forward and whether it's needle exchange programs or uh, more access to methadone, more access to health care, supportive housing or a supervised injection site, uh, a lot of the work uh, that has been done and the progress in this area really belongs to the people that are uh, suffering the most and uh, I've been trying um, best I can to uh, give agency and voice to a population that's uh, uh, been silenced and uh, um, um, uh, isolated for too long. When, I talk, when we talk about harm reduction, um, I guess the most um, vivid example of this in Vancouver is uh, Insight. Um, it was opened in 2003 as North America's very first government-sanctioned supervised injection site. It was designed as a three-year research project, and at that time the Conservative government was very intent in closing it down as soon as that three years was over. Um, through advocacy and, uh, and pressure from various sectors, it, was, it remained open and the um, battle to close Insight went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in 2011, the Supreme Court ruled in a decision 9-0 to zero that Insight had to stay open and that more of these services were necessary. Somehow we got stuck, and uh, for, for the next five or six years, we weren't able to push that forward at all. And um, except in 2016, uh, with this overwhelming overdose crisis, the provincial government at that time mandated the opening of what we called overdose prevention sites. And about 20 of these, uh, mostly tents, that were um, uh, conducted by uh, volunteers and community experts or community volunteers uh, opened up across the province. And today there's about 30 of these sites that are open. Uh, some now have got official approval from Health Canada. Um, others, we don't really want that approval because often it comes with strings attached and restrictions that are um, barriers to people using them in the first place. So I think as far as our response to the overdose crisis, uh, naloxone program and the uh, overdose prevention sites are the things that we can take the most pride in and that we have moved forward. But it's very unfortunate that uh, throughout the province and certainly in, uh, throughout North America, harm reduction and these kind of services are still met with a, a lot of opposition. And uh, things that people think about this, that the population's not ready for it, that um, these are, um, they can cause more harm than good, and the most crazy um, uh, pushback is that they're too expensive. Um, um, these kind of radical harm reduction programs compared to what we do to people right now, which is track them down, arrest them, throw them in jail, and cycle them through this for the rest of their lives, is probably the most radical thing we could ever think to do with a vulnerable population that's uh, using drugs. So um, these harm reduction steps to me are just common sense that we need to move forward. And uh, I think as a society, we really need to get that message out there that people who, uh, who are suffering with their addiction, we're creating some of this uh, for them with our drug policies. We can also link the, uh, um, what we're doing with our drug policies 
directly to the overdose situation. And as you've heard today, um, what's happened is we've squeezed the market and through prohibition, we've forced the situation that we're in now. For years in uh, Vancouver and throughout BC, um, heroin was generally available and there was always a big supply of diverted uh, pharmaceutical opioids. And uh, with changes in prescriptions and a real sensitivity that uh, doctors may have contributed to this epidemic, there's been a real squeeze on the street supply. Uh, it's harder to get these drugs now. Uh, counterfeit drugs have uh, come in through this prohibition. And for reasons that we don't understand very well, uh, heroin has disappeared. And uh, through uh, 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 prohibition, now we have uh, a situation where we have a very toxic drug supply. And these, uh, the fentanyl and carfentanyl that are killing people right now uh, are easy to import, impossible to stop, and very difficult to dose properly. Um, unfortunately, uh, we don't have Walter White to do quality control for us here, and so we have a lot of people that are uh, uh, trying to mix up these drugs in a very dangerous way, and uh, we have these bad batches that appear and uh, a lot of people can die at once. And so we have a very unregulated drug market and uh, the toxic, the toxic uh, street drug supply now is uh, directly responsible for the, all these overdose deaths that we're seeing. Um, which brings me to uh, this drug supply. So um, this is, uh, so I think many of us have come to the conclusion that uh, with a toxic drug supply, we need a public health response to this. We cannot um, treat our way out of this clinically. And although we need more addiction services and more places for people to get treatment, uh, there's just too many people using drugs to develop a therapeutic, res uh, therapeutic relationship with uh, thousands and thousands of people in the next year. And we need to get people a safe supply of drugs. The things that we move forward slightly are uh, programs that we have at the Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver where there's prescription opiates that are given intravenously. So uh, the clinic sees about 140 people a day where uh, they go and get heroin or hydromorphone injections under supervision up to three times a day. And there's a, a real push throughout the province to open these programs up to other areas outside of Vancouver, but they're still highly medicalized programs where people are expected to come and have their drugs supervised. And uh, I don't think that's good enough uh, as a response uh, as far as a scalable response to help people. So um, in um, late last fall, there was a call for uh, innovative proposals for the overdose epidemic, and we put in a grant to try and give out hydromorphone or dilated pills to people, knowing that Many people will crush them up and inject them, but it's a scalable program. And I was giving a talk in uh, Victoria after we got this grant, and I said, we have to think of ways that we can uh, regulate and get these drugs out to people. And we could even use, you know, we should do it at Insight, we could do it at Supportive Housing, and we could even put them in vending machines. So the next day, the, t the, uh, the uh, um, headline in the paper, uh, public health doctor wants to give out dangerous drugs in vending machines. So um, I did about 20 interviews in the next uh, 24 hours about this thing, and every interview was exactly the same. Well, doctor, you want to give out these drugs in vending machines. Would they go in shopping malls? And I said, well, it's not really about the vending machines. It's really low-barrier ways that people could access these drugs. Well, doctor, how would you prevent children from getting these drugs? Well, it's not really about the vending machines. So uh, after 20 interviews, I totally convinced myself that we should put drugs in vending machines. So um, 
I was called the next day by a company who makes vending machines. And so um, I've been working with them, and uh, we, um, we have a project now that we're working towards to uh, allow people, um, these are biometric machines, so only the people who are registered can get the drugs regulated, so every pill that comes out we can document, um, and so we can control and get the right people to use them. So uh, this is, uh, um, I think, maybe an extreme example of how we get a safe supply of drugs out. But if you think about any other poisoning epidemic, imagine if 1,500 people died last year of uh, contaminated beer or coffee or meat or something. We'd, the first thing we'd do is offer people a non-contaminated supply. And in people, knowing what we know about the length people will go to with their addiction to get these products, it's pretty crazy to think, well, in a contaminated drug supply, people just won't use them. Well, they're going to use them. And uh, so we have to offer people the opportunity to uh, access a safe supply of drugs in any way we can. And as I say, we're supporting the injectable programs, but for a scalable provincial response and probably a Canadian response, we really need to get used to the idea that people will be using these drugs and they deserve uh, access to a safer supply. And so that's what we're, we're working on right now. Um, when I talk about this, it's so important to uh, make sure that we uh, recognize the people that have, uh, have died. And uh, working with community groups who are totally devastated. I meet with, with groups that uh, really have their actual brothers and sisters and children have actually died of an overdose. And uh, it's just so tragic. And um, we, we, a lot of these people uh, uh, die in isolation and uh, nobody really cares. And it's uh, just shocking the way as a society we allow that to happen. Um, when I was on my way here today, I got a, a text that, or an email that I just want to read to you because I think it illustrates exactly what I'm trying to say about how we need to reach out to people, show empathy, and give people an opportunity. So this is uh, from somebody I don't know named Shauna. Um, Dr. Tyndall, I was blown away by your TED Talk. Thank you. Uh, I am the mother of a 17-year-old meth and heroin addict. She has been incarcerated for most of the last year and a half, receiving help that does not help. I am desperate. I have been desperate. Change, <laughs> change is needed, um, but I am one non-relevant person fighting a system that doesn't believe in change. I don't want my daughter to die. <laughs> so... Um, So we're three years into this, that tomorrow four more people will die, and we're still fighting about whether we should have a supervised injection site. We're still fighting about whether people should be allowed housing and things like that, and I think as a society we, uh, we need to do way better. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for sharing that um, very, very touching communication. And um, I think that speaks to the heart of why we're all here and why we're all concerned. If I could get the other three speakers to come onto stage as well. I had, um, I had quite selfishly written a whole bunch of questions that I was going to ask, uh, ask the speakers and going to say my questions come first. But after reading the questions uh, on here, um, as I would expect from UBC alumni and UBC friends, your questions are actually a lot better than mine. Um, so I'm going to go with your questions, I think. Let's wait for friends to sit down. Um, 
there's, there's, there's quite a number of them, and I'm going to perhaps start, start with Leanne first. And there's, a, there's about a three, there's a, it's, it, sorry, not Leanne, Lindsay first. It's a three-part three part kind of question. So one was that around um, the payment, um, the, the payment issue, um, is there experience from other places in the world where they've taken the once a month payment and split into weekly or, or, or smaller segments? And what's the experience there been is the part one. The part two is how popular will this be with government having to do four times the work or three times the work to process that many more checks? Yeah. Um, so first question on other systems internationally. Um, to my knowledge, there are other systems that exist in the world in terms of payment frequency, but no one has actually done the research to look at its association with substance use. And so, for example, every jurisdiction in Canada except for the territories and Newfoundland pays once a month all on the same day. And what do they do? What do the other ones do? Uh, often they do the 1st and the 15th. Hmm. They often split it up that way. Uh, and uh, I think it's... Hmm. I think it's the Northwest Territories that has a system where you can opt in to whichever you prefer. Um, and that choice piece, I think, is going to be really interesting as we move forward. Um, but to my knowledge, no one has looked at fine-grained drug use information and mapped it onto those systems that are a little bit different, which is, if they had, we wouldn't need to do the study that we're doing right now. Uh, for the second question around government response, uh, I think the society that we live in has changed in terms of how we do banking to be very it's a very basic thing you know when the system was designed it were it was physical checks that were being cut all the time and now what we know is this the province has moved to a system of direct deposit and so in a, a digital banking system it's very different to have to cut physical checks than it is to just transfer money to hit a button and so i perhaps naively think that that moving forward that there's Po the possibility to bring a little bit more sophistication into those systems instead of it just being like people lined up around the block to get a check. Most people have their money directly deposited. That, In fact, that's how we do the study. Yeah, right. that's great. I was just going to add, if anyone wants to ask a question who hasn't submitted it online, there are friends walking around with um, um, microphones, so just put your hand up and we'll take questions from the audience as well. Um, so Leanne, um, the next one is yours, and I was actually thinking about this as well, and I'll actually read it word for word. It says, um, you did an amazing talk on the problem, but are there any solutions to the link between oral health and substance abuse um, uh, immediately, um, in, in, as opposed to an association? And the second is, given how important oral health is, what are some low-cost options for people to access it? It's a great question, actually. And quite often, people are looking at low-cost options, and it's where... I tend to get people to also think in a different way. It's not low cost. It's appropriate for the individual. Um, cost certainly can, can play a role in access. We know about the five A's of access. Affordability is certainly one of them. Um, but the availability of the services, the acceptability of the services, how practitioners are actually accommodating individuals. I think we heard this very clearly in our stigma study is um, it's not just the low cost option. So I have a number of great offices that I know practice trauma and violence informed care um, that I know work really well with um, people on all different levels of social service um, 
insurances. Um, those are the important things, being treated well and having the care provided that's appropriate so that when somebody comes in with disability insurance, you don't take out their front teeth and leave them for the next year and a half without front teeth. That's not going to solve yeah. the issue. So as a family physician, this comes up often in my practice, and not just substance use, but people who can't afford. So where would they go to even find these, um, let's say, even the low-cost options? So the low-cost options are published um, on both the BC Dental Association as well as the BC Dental Hygiene Association websites. UBC website, I believe we also have it, if not should maybe um, be up. One of the issues that comes with these lists, though, is they change quite often. So they do have to be updated, um, and people need to call these offices to ensure that they're still either accepting um, patients or that things are still the same. Let me ask you a politically charged question. How, how close are we ever going to get to universal dental care? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I, I don't think we are. We're actually holding a conference right in this very room in September with the Canadian Association for Public Health Dentistry tackling that exact um, topic. Um, it goes back to that affordability thing again. If we think about just putting money towards it, it doesn't address the other issues. We know that 6% of people will actually have social services. 25% of them will not use their benefits mm. for various reasons. Um, in, in particular, what comes to mind is um, First Nations. People tend to not use it. The, um, the um, insurance is, is cumbersome. Um, it's, it's difficult to deal with. Um, and it's also stigmatizing for some people. So when people talk about coming into a dental office with a Correction Services Canada card or with a First Nations status card, um, they tend not to want to do that because it stigmatizes them and they've had bad experiences. And I was going to say, if you go back historically, the residential hospitals and the, yeah. and the residential schools yeah. and that history is, hasn't been good. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if there is a, a microphone being passed around, yeah, is there anyone... Otherwise, I'll. So, Tamara, this is what I was thinking as the question, um, as this one was posed, is is there any type of medication that can be substituted and that is not as addicting as opiates but can provide relief to patients? That's so, we recognize the problem, question, but, what, yeah. but what's, what, what are the other options? Yeah, I think the important thing, and that's part of um, some of our protocols, first of all, it's everything is patient specific, situation specific, the type of pain specific. Some of the things that we've been looking at targeting is you know, differences between neuropathic pain versus um, providing, you know, short-term analgesic pain. Um, but a lot of it, if you actually look at um, a lot of the information that's coming out now and um, the suggestions that are being made is a lot of it involves counseling patients on their pain. And a lot of it is non-pharmaceutical options. And so it's not always a matter of, well, let's just substitute this for this, which is exactly what happened with hydromorphone for oxycodone. It's how do we explain pain to people? How do we let them know what to expect? And how do we connect them with appropriate resources ongoing? So uh, that's not a very pharmaceutical answer for your question, but um, in uh, that, it, 
that is sort of the sense that we're trying to go with at the moment. I didn't expect an uh, easy answer on that yeah. one, for sure. But the one, uh, here's one, your MORE was extremely, your MORE um, acronym and program was very popular. So the question was, as a fellow pharmacist in Vancouver Coastal Health, I'd like to know if I can access the St. Paul's MORE tool. Yeah, so um, we're currently in the process. We just did our pilot on our own inpatient units. We are conducting surveys with our pharmacists to say, you know, what worked, what didn't, what suggestions do you have? And as we modify the tool and then um, initiate it um, throughout the hospital, we'd be more than happy to share it with other um, areas and communicate. So I don't know if my email was anywhere there, but you can uh, find me pretty easily in the St. Paul's database and we can chat. That's great. Um, so Mark, and I have to say this, when you went around and doing those interviews, I'm a bit of a, a news uh, um, I, I watch a lot of news and listen to a lot of news and I did listen to two of those interviews and it was quite interesting. The first question from the interviewer was, so really, drugs and vending machines? Really, doctor? And, um, and, and, and I thought you danced around it well and it must have been towards the early part of those interviews because it was like maybe we shouldn't be just focused on this one bit of my entire, of my entire strategy. But Mark, there's, there's a couple of questions here that I think are charged. One is, um, despite the evidence supporting harm reduction, why do policymakers and communities resist change? Well, um, yeah, I actually they. It's only been twenty-five years of you studying this. I'm just wondering. I'm 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 miffed. I, I don't. It is really people uh, having uh, this fear that is totally unfounded on any evidence. Um, you know, having a supervised. If people in their community are concerned about drug users and discarded needles and people hanging out in door stoops, I mean, the exact thing they need is a supervised place where people can go. So it would make their communities safer and better, but there's somehow, there's this big fear um, and uh, that I, usually if I can get a one-on-one, -on -one, I can kind of change people's uh, attitudes, but I don't have time to do that with everybody. So uh, <laughs> I, I think that in this, we have an opportunity with such a crisis, if people really understood what we're dealing with here, um, we don't have time to convince every community this is what they need. This is the evidence to support what we need to do, and this is uh, from a public health way. We're going to save lives and make your community better. So uh, to, sometimes I just lose patience with these uh, endless community meetings and backlash of people who uh, claim to be experts, and the only thing they're experts on is protecting their own backyard, and uh, they, we just need to uh, make some hard decisions and uh, move on. The overdose prevention sites, I think, are a great example where uh, we just defied communities and didn't have a chance to even organize. So uh, uh, one day there's no overdose prevention site in your place, now there is. And there's nobody, there, there's not a community out there with one that is trying to close them down. So most people are, well, yeah, of course, it's, a, it's great we have one. So it's a, it's a very interesting uh, process, but I think we need to uh, do what's the right thing and, uh, and we will never get buy-in from all the communities. Let me ask you another very sensitive question that one of the audience members asked is, why would someone choose not to go to an insight or regulated um, location to do opiates, and why would they rather do it on the streets or somewhere else? Wow, you just set me up with, that's a perfect question. That's the whole reason why we need these kind of low barrier things. So um, we've entrenched in communities and drug users in a criminalized state so much that of course people go in isolation. They're buying illegal drugs. So it's a really unusual that people will walk into one of these sites. We have to encourage people to do it because there's so much mistrust that why would people open themselves up to going into a place where they're people know they're using drugs. So it's, uh, and 
it is a real concern for people. Police know who's going in there and things, and a lot of people have warrants and all kinds of reasons. So, um, and people, they're normal, you know, if people are depressed and for every reason they're using them, a lot of people like using drugs by themselves in isolation. They're not looking for a big party with a lot of people. So we have to uh, um, give people the opportunity to access these drugs in uh, doing their own thing. And, uh, they, you know, the whole, the whole concern with uh, if somebody comes in and they need the drugs for their dependency, I'm not sure what we're trying to accomplish by saying, no, you can't have those drugs. I mean, they're already addicted. <laughs> so I'm not sure what the whole point is. Like, okay, have the drugs. And if we know the overdose crisis happened because we haven't been keeping people the drugs. People were not dying of OxyContin overdoses. They were, a few were, but that most people know the dose, they know what they need, and they take it. So um, we've created the overdose crisis by restricting those drugs. So people are reluctant to use these services, and because we have a criminalized system. So the only way to fight that is to decriminalize these drugs. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Tamara, it looks like somebody actually answered the earlier question about what you could use to substitute for opiates. Um, all, all kidding aside, this, what's your take on medical cannabis? I knew <laughs> <laughs> um, So I'll read the rest of the question. What's your take on medical cannabis, and could this be used as, in an opiate taper as a substitute for chronic pain management? Yeah, um, I'll preface this with my own bias that I specialize in mental health. So my inherent, um, what I see on a day-to-day -day basis is the negative effects of um, high concentration THC products causing psychosis and mania. However, I do think from reviewing the literature that there is promise, particularly with CBD primary products for things like um, chronic pain and even for certain mental health illnesses, and my hope is that potentially with the legalization of marijuana that more studies could be done for that and that we could actually have something to direct our patients towards because as you've said, people are still, same with opioids, same with marijuana, people are still using it and saying you can't use it is not the right answer. So yeah, um, I think at this time I can't um, make a formal recommendation, but I, I, I would be curious as to see if what further literature would have to say about that. Yep, thank you. So, Lindsay, um, th th this question sort of, you focused on, on the, the, the day on Wednesday or so forth when the, when the check and the payments come out. So this is sort of not challenging that, but asking you to perhaps look at it slightly differently, which is overdoses occur at all income levels. What are the stats for users in poverty admitted to ER certified death compared to those who are financially better? So I don't Let know. me add to that because I think what yeah. we're finding is that a lot of people, especially some of the deaths that were really publicized, were people in suburbs with kids and functional and middle class, and it wasn't your, what, what everybody else had been thinking. Yeah. So they aren't necessarily waiting for that Wednesday payment, right? right? So, I mean, my general approach to all of this is that that's one piece of a bigger puzzle, mm -hmm. right? I think that the work that every single person on this stage is doing is a brick in a wall of a collective response. And so, um, I think of that, the, the sort of focus on check day, like that province-wide spike in overdoses is not unique to the crisis. There was a study that I worked with people at the CDC to do previously that looked at province-wide, and that 40% spike is consistent province-wide. Um, and when we think about money and drugs, we can think about the degree to which money regulates drug use. And so that spike isn't necessarily unique to that population. That's one component of a broader piece. And so thinking about the degree to which um, money and drug use are integrated and socioeconomic well-being are integrated is an important piece. 
thinking about it as overdoses occurring across the spectrum points to the fact that we have multiple causal pathways, right? So it's not just this, it's not just that. These are all sort of pieces of a puzzle and so there's a collective response that I think has to include decriminalization or legalization and, and all of those things. So it's about picking the pieces of the puzzle that, that where there's actionable things that we can identify. They can. can I just yeah, please do. Please as do. far as a, a people should not go away with the misconception that this is uh, equally uh, toxic to the whole pop general population. So when they, we recently did a review of all the deaths in the last two years, 64% of people had a been in jail in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. and that's not counting all the people that were charged and never went to jail. So this is a, the people that are dying are, for the most part, a criminalized, mm -hmm. uh, long-standing drug use population, and uh, this idea that uh, uh, it can happen to anybody at any time, I think is um, useful to capture people's attention, and it can happen. Certainly there are kind of tragic things that happen to, to people that are, are randomly, but, uh, but the this focus is, is still there. The focus is entrenched people who are using these drugs all the time, and why we've uncovered a lot of people that we were quite functional with their drug use is because we pulled away their steady supply of diverted prescription drugs and all of a sudden throwing them out into a, a world that they don't know very well and uh, end up dying. Yeah, very helpful. I, I also think there's a piece yeah. around where the media focuses their sure. attention as well. And so when it is someone who we wouldn't ordinarily right. think of as, as at high risk, then the media is going to fixate on that. But that because it's unusual. It's newsworthy. But it's not the whole picture. Right. So Leanne, you touched on this, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to expand on it. Um, this audience member said, um, your thoughts on, uh, it's beyond dental coverage, which is what you said already, and they said, um, your thoughts on policy actions to help decrease the harmful impact of poor oral health on mental health substance use. And I'm going to go one step further, not just policy, but uh, destigmatizing, as you said. What do we need to do as a future healthcare professionals, those of us, those that are being trained, and, and so that's an education level, but at a policy level as well, what do you think needs to happen? That's a great question. I don't know if I actually even know that answer at this point. I know a lot of people will, will look at universalism as, as the key policy issue around this. Um, but I think it really goes back right now, first of all, is to awareness. So that when we think about mental illness and addiction and the opioid crisis and, and oral health, which kind of comes out of the blue to people, um, that we're aware that it does have a contributing factor because it is a pain source. Um, and it's not only a physical pain source, but it's an emotional pain source from a psychosocial perspective. So doing and coming and, and talking about things and being invited, and that's why I'm very happy that you did that, um, and allowing us to, to look at it differently, both from a continuing education standpoint with our... Um, practitioners, as well as um, with our students. Um, I would hope that everyone in this room that is a healthcare practitioner that works with people with mental illness and substance use um, gives some thought to, to not just treating the mental illness or the substance use, but also giving consideration to, is there an oral health issue here? Um, as well that might drive it because you can treat the mental illness and the substance use disorder um, but if one of the root causes 
is, is a pain related to oral health, um, you could have relapse. That needs to be addressed. Go ahead. Is it on? Oh, thanks. Um, I, had, um, I just wanted to make a comment about the dental fees. Um, people are allowed $500 if they're just uh, employable in welfare, but it has to be acute pain, and it can only be an extraction or a filling. And so there's no preventative um, mm. dentistry covered at all by welfare, which is a tragedy. Um, the First Nations um, has a user fee, and it's extremely low. I have taken people by the arm and said, I'm paying, get your damn teeth fixed. Um, but <clears throat> my, other, my other question is about whether, I think that oral health is not looked uh, at closely enough in terms of endocarditis and all these really terrible um, infections. And the teeth that you showed, I see much worse than that all the time. And um, they get really, really infected gums. And I don't know enough medically about what can be done when they're in that shape. Uh, some people seem to try to go to get help, and they tell them that they're too infected to um, extract their teeth. And it can really start taking a long time. And sometimes the pain, um, the freezing doesn't take because of the infection. I'm not. Sure. Do you have a comment about that? Because the teeth thing is fascinating. Um, and. Yeah. Very much more expensive than a universal f teeth program. I'm telling you, write your politicians, we can get one. People told us we couldn't get health care covered, and we did it. So we can do it again with dental, just saying. Did you want to add anything more to that, Leanne? So that was a lot of questions. <laughs> um, let me talk about the infection one. So, yes, there is the, the pH changes in the tissues, so sometimes local anesthesia may not be as effective. You typically treat with a round of antibiotics prior to actually doing that because it actually reduces the amount of infection present. Um, yes, that can all be taken out. Yes, that is, if it is 32 teeth, it is a big procedure. Um, my previous work was, was in geriatrics, um, and I still practice in long-term care facilities. Um, and for the most part, a lot of teeth are left at that time because the trauma of taking them out is actually worse than um, staying. And sometimes they, they get worse, and sometimes they don't. But that's an older population where the nerve and the blood supply is essentially obliterated at that point so the source of infection isn't as high so yeah you can get some some bad infections um yeah so I'll, <laughs> yep go ahead dr tyndall um i was wondering in some places in europe um i think drugs are either legalized or easily accessible in in a safe way What's the experience been there in terms of preventing overdose deaths and maybe leading people into a, a course of um, treatment for their addictions rather than criminalizing them? Like Portugal, I think, is one of them. Uh, if that's a good experience, how come we're not using that more here in Canada to try to put to maybe push the politicians to make some changes? Yeah, um, there's several European countries that have models that uh, are um, that we can learn from. Um, as far as um, Prescription drugs and prescription heroin sort of switz, uh, Switzerland leads the way in, in that. So there's uh, several thousand people that are doing that and uh, doing quite well. 
But as far as the decriminalization experiment, it's really only happened in Portugal. Um, and I, there's um, actually our government's been over there. And so there is some, uh, some discussion about how we can uh, adopt some of what Portugal's done. Um, it's, you know, it's not a, it hasn't been a huge step. They basically, for small quantities of any drugs, you uh, get a, a, a ticket. You go have to appear in a dissuasion panel, but there's, uh, you can, you know, um, keep going. And, but they do offer you a lot of other alternatives. So there's healing communities you can go to. There's um, employment programs. Uh, one of the coolest things they do is off, they have a list of employers and the government will pay a year's salary for them to work and get get going again and then uh, hopefully continue on. So there's a lot, they've taken a lot of the money that they were putting in the criminal justice system and put it to social and rehabilitation programs and I think that's been the key to Portugal. But clearly clearing your jails from people who are there for uh, possession of these drugs is uh, is silly and so Portugal's the model that uh, has, has uh, done that. It, we wouldn't be, if without the overdose crisis, I don't think we'd be talking about decriminalization but um, Man, I think we've come a long way. The, the mayor of Vancouver has come out with a statement a couple of weeks ago, and we are working with the city to try a, an experiment of decriminalization in Vancouver. So it would be cool to do a kind of year um, um, work on that. The Vancouver Police Department is, uh, is probably supportive of something like that. So uh, I think the time is now to really do something in Canada that's quite progressive. The, Unfortunately, uh, a recent vote at the federal level by the Liberal government has said they're not going to do that. That was one of the uh, um, motions put forward, and uh, the Prime Minister's come out quite clearly that's not in their cards, but um, he said things about pipelines and other things that can be changed. So, um, <laughs> I, I, so I think it's a, um, a p political reason, but if we can do it with marijuana, it's, this is a no-brainer, right? Like, cannabis affects so many people, and we're trying to do it. This is a... This is a small issue as far as numbers of people impacted, and uh, it wouldn't, I think it would just, uh, it would work well, and I think uh, we really should push for a decriminalization experiment in, in Canada. Thank you for the question. I think there's a lot of learnings from Portugal that need to be talked about. I know we're over time, and there's probably a few other questions that needed to be um, looked at, but there is one big one that we said at the beginning that I don't think we've talked about, and this is sort of open for all the four of you, which is, we, we didn't talk about if you have a loved one, a friend, a community member, somebody that you know that's dealing with a substance use issue. Well, how do you support them and where do you direct them and what do you do? And given that you deal with people who have it, what, what would your suggestion be for those of us that uh, are not experts? I, yeah, I would say from, I guess, working in a setting day to day with patients and their families, the patients that I see anecdotally that progress the most and do the best are the ones that do have their family support. Their studies have actually shown that within mental health that having family be involved in your care is one of the most beneficial things that can be done. So I would say being there and being supportive is important and also just trying to educate themselves about what is addiction, what is dependence, and what are options, reaching out to trusted healthcare professionals, knowing that there's pharmacists there, that there's their primary care providers, and just trying to seek more information would be supportive. Anything to add? Um, the thing that comes to my mind most prominently is uh, to not perpetuate stigma. Mm. People use drugs. It is a normal part of human behavior. We've been doing it since recorded history. And so to pretend like it is something that needs to be hidden or kept secret 
is going to prevent people from engaging in care, seeking the social support that they need. And so doing what we can to avoid stigmatizing behavior for loved ones, I think, is of, of primary importance and something that everyone can do. You don't have to be a medical professional to have open discussions. Sure. Did you want to add yeah. to that, Leanne? I would say exactly the same thing. Actually, it's, I think the most important thing is that people feel supported by their loved ones, that they're not actually going to be um, ostracized mm -hmm. from their family, which we quite often see when there is substance use and then you throw in mental illness and incarceration. Sure. That population tends to really lose relationships. And when you lose relationships and support, um, their success is, is not going to be great. So Mark, you read us a very touching um, message to you. What would you be telling that mom? What would you be telling um, somebody who knew her daughter? Yeah, I mean, I do think that we need places where, supportive places where people can go. We need to set realistic expectations. Um, in this particular case, this, this, um, this particular situation, there's a quite a high likelihood that that person will die. I mean, in this, in, in this particular environment, and uh, they really need low barrier places where probably the thing that that person needs right now is a safe source of their opiates um, and uh, an environment where people uh, and can um, you know, help them recover. And it, I think a lot of, especially this, we've really medicalized this problem to some extent so that all we need to do is train primary care doctors to put people on methadone and suboxone and then go on. But you can't, a lot of people have, you know, 25-year history of trauma and horrible things that have happened to them, and they're not going to be fixed by giving them a pill a day at the pharmacy. So this is a, for a lot of people, it's a long road back, and we have to be prepared to kind of invest in that uh, therapeutic in the long term and uh, you know the, the kind of uh, term we meet people where they are but um, really we have to uh, set realistic expectations for people um, trauma the trauma-informed care that, that we can provide for people and uh, and just give people a, a, a range of options great so on behalf of all of us first of all thank you for the fabulous med talks but second and thirdly is that um, thank you very much for sharing your time but then thank you very much for everything that you're doing on a daily basis around this issue and, and the crisis. So.